Welcome to For Podcasts. With me is Martin Plout. He is an author. He has been a top journalist. He worked for BBC, covered Africa for a long time, and he also runs half marathons. Um, Martin, welcome. Thank you very much. Martin, let's uh, go down memory lane and let's go down uh, a long time ago, 1977, and uh, you apparently ended up in the Labour Party. I did indeed. I uh, came over to the UK uh, from uh, South Africa. I'd been involved in the trade union movement there, uh, which had been, of course, terribly suppressed by the apartheid government in the 1960s. And then in the early 1970s, a group of students got together and we thought that this was outrageous and the living standards that the black population were living under were absolutely appalling. And so we began in a very amateurish way to try and suggest to them they should come together and form trade unions. We never actually could say trade unions, but we said there are ways you can organize and get together and somehow things will will improve. And within about 18 months, it was so successful that the unions were, were in a very small way beginning to take off. And they told us, thank you, you know nothing about it, go away. And we thought, yes, that's a fantastic result. So I then came over to the UK in 77, wanting to finish off my uh, education. I went to Warwick University and did a degree in industrial relations, which was interesting. And then at the end of it, I uh, by that time, I'd, I'd met my wife, my future wife, and we were together. And really, the one thing she wasn't keen to do as a, as a British nurse was to go and live in apartheid South Africa. And I had to admit it wasn't such an attractive prospect. So I agreed to stay in the UK. Aha. Uh -huh. And um, immediately afterwards, uh, none of the unions would touch you, apparently, because... Uh, a chap like you turned out to be a boss agent. And boss is, of course, Bureau of State Security, the Secret Service of South Africa, that's apartheid South Africa. That's absolutely right. His name was Craig Williamson. He was revealed to have penetrated the International University Exchange Fund. And this happened shortly before I qualified. And uh, although I applied to the various unions in, in London for a job, none of them would touch me because they thought we don't want to go down this road. You, We've you, seen this, <laughs> this number before. Uh, <laughs> they'd seen the movie before and exactly. you could have been a boss agent. Huh? <laughs> I could indeed. But uh, so I then yeah. applied. Uh, I worked for Mobile Oil for a year. And then I saw John. And you, you, you cycled to, <laughs> to work to Mobile Oil. Of I, I did. It was rather rather peculiar. Uh, and um, Mobile Oil thought I was a bit odd. But they, they, we, I got on well and we had a good time. And after a year, then a job appeared for, with the British Labour Party. And I uh, got the job of being the Africa Secretary, which meant that I did research for MPs. And I served the national executive of the party. Um, trying to help shape policy on Africa. And that mostly meant working on South Africa and working uh, essentially against apartheid. And that was what, what I, that was the job that I got. And what happened on day one? That's a fascinating story. <laughs> well, it, it was, it was most peculiar. As I got, got to the job and it was, uh, we were in Smith Square actually, which was 
particularly during elections, you had to be careful what you said in the pub because you 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 knew that the other side was there. But anyway, you I, went to the same pub. That's of very course different. You went to the same yeah, that's pub. very different to what Republicans <laughs> and Democrats do in Washington. <laughs> yes, well, this was a long time ago, and uh, I, I got was in my, went into my office, and there was my in tray, and in my in tray was a policy document which had been sent by my committee, the Africa Committee. And, and just for our younger listeners, it was on paper. <laughs> <laughs> it was on paper. That's absolutely true. So, yes, it was uh, indeed on paper. And uh, I looked at it. And there were buried was a paper which said that the Labour Party should now henceforth recognise the African National Congress of South Africa as the sole legitimate representative of the people of South Africa. Now, that was a uh, decision which had been taken by the Africa Committee. The National Executive would then endorse it if it went to it, and there was no doubt it would go through. The same kind of decision had been taken by the United Nations in relation to Swapo Namibia which was the liberation movement in Namibia. But that was partly because, in a very peculiar way, the League of Nations had given Namibia to South Africa to rule, but only temporarily, and the United Nations took over that responsibility. So it was for the United Nations to make that decision. When I looked at this document, I thought, well, yeah, what a good idea. I mean, the ANC is the big organization. Of course, we should recognize it. And then I thought about it, and I thought, hang on a minute. That means that other organizations in South Africa, like the Pan-Africanist Organization, uh, which was uh, the Pan-Africanist Congress, which was the other big organization, if we wanted to talk to them or we wanted to talk to some of the other opposition parties or the trade unions that I'd been working with in South Africa, we'd have to get permission from the ANC because they were, quote, the sole legitimate representative. And I thought, man, this can't be right. So I went to my boss, whose name was Jenny Little, and uh, I said to her, you know, this, is not, this can't be right. We can't do this. And she was horrified because she was very much uh, in the mold of saying that the ANC was the only organization. He couldn't see why this was a problem. And she, she was also uh, hard-boiled Trotskyite. No, she wasn't a Trotskyite. Quite the opposite. She, she was, was a Stalinist. Stalinist. Yes, ah! yes, yes. I'm afraid so. Oh, dear. Uh, she was having a relationship, actually, uh, with somebody who was the deputy head of the Transport and General Workers Union, who himself was, although Labour, very much a Stalinist. Mm. So uh, They didn't send you to the Gulag. Well, they tried. <laughs> and what they did was that they, they called a meeting uh, at which was Joan Lester was there, who was the, uh, the head of the International Committee. She was a politician, an MP, not a, not a bureaucrat. A uh, fiery red-headed woman, but a very reasonable woman in herself and a, a very good Labour Party uh, member of Parliament. And they then called a meeting with the ANC without discussing it with me. So I arrive at this meeting and there alone. is... Alone. <laughs> with... The lone Jenny, cowboy. <laughs> I was, yes. <laughs> with, with Jenny Little, with uh, Joan Lester, and then with Abdul Minty and um, three other members of the ANC. Uh, who were looked at me coldly, and as I began to explain why I didn't think they were the sole rep representatives of the people of South Africa. Now, I just said, look, this isn't a decision that the British Labour Party should take. It's a decision 
that should be taken by the people of South Africa. Nobody else can award this kind of status to you. And uh, although they loathed my gut, they couldn't think of a reason why I was wrong. And frankly, I was right. It wasn't one that we could take. But they were absolutely furious. And Abdul Minty, who was a very senior member of the, the ANC and the uh, Communist Party of South Africa. So he was both the ANC and the Communist Party. Absolutely. And this has always been something that was allowed in the, in the ANC. They always allowed you to be a member of both parties. Um, stormed out. And after that, all sorts of rumors began s circulating that I was working with South African state covertly. So you were a boss agent. Exactly. Of you course. Were, you, you were the James Bond of boss. <laughs> <laughs> well, something like that. Of course, uh, if I had been working for the South African state, I would have done exactly the opposite. And I would have tried to get into the good books of the ANC and said, of course, you're the only representative. We should be very close to you. Now, I never wanted not to have a relationship with the ANC, but I wanted them to be just one of several organizations and it was up to the people of South Africa to decide who represented them. So you wanted polygamy, not monogamy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I represented the uh, British Labour Party at the anti-apartheid movement, and I used to go to the meetings. But those meetings were clearly run by, not just by the ANC, but by the Communist Party. Uh, and uh, although they always had other people to front the organization, they were the people who pulled the strings, and the, the strings were designed to make sure I didn't have a say. Now, you've mentioned the Communist Party, and this is something very few people uh, know, and even I don't know much, and I've read a wee bit uh, about that period. Um, obviously, I wasn't there like you, so I'm very curious, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, as to what was the role these communists were playing in the movement? Well, they were, they were very important. And, and in a sense, the, the Communist Party go, goes back to the early years of the last century of the 19th century. And You mean the South African Communist Party? Yes, the Party. South African Communist Party. And they were, most of the key people who were there were themselves uh, mostly white. Most of them were Jewish, although most Jews in South Africa were very conservative. The small number who were not generally tended towards being members of the Communist Party. Many of them had learnt their communism in Latvia, in Lithuania, in Russia. They'd fled from repression there. They'd come to South Africa for new life they and had, brought their politics. So they had fled the pogroms of Tsarist Russia. They had become communist uh, in that crucible and they took that with them to South Africa. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And uh, they, I mean, they did, they did good work. They, they didn't just recruit whites. They, they were one of the few organizations that recruited people of all colors. And in fact, one of their, their great attractions was that they used to hold dances over the weekend at which people of all colors could dance together. And this was complete novelty to... to at uh, that time. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. They, they never, uh, whatever one thought of the Communist Party, they certainly were not racist. Mm -hmm. uh, but in 1948, the National Party, which was the hard right uh, apartheid party, mostly controlled by Afrikaners, comes to power. And two years later, the Communist Party is banned. And the Communist Party then takes a decision which no other Communist Party in the world has ever done before or since. In, when they were banned, 
they dissolved themselves. Why? Well, they just thought that they couldn't stand up to the, the, the pressure of the South African state. And many of the white Jews then left the country and came and lived in London. In North London? In North London, uh, in Hampstead, mm -hmm. in places like that. Emulating and, Marx, who's buried in Highgate Cemetery. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and people like Joe Slovo, for example, who was a uh, came to lead the uh, be the leading of the ANC's military wing on Contour with Sizwe. He lived here. Mm. In fact, a few hundred yards from where we are sitting tonight. Oh, wow. So they came here and they then felt very bad about having left their black comrades and some of their white comrades back in South Africa, and then they formed the anti-apartheid movement, which, of course, after the uh, didn't do much, but after the Sharpville massacre uh, in 1960, when uh, you know, the police opened fire on a crowd of black people and uh, nearly 100 of them were killed, and it was an appalling event, the whole world was horrified by what happened, and the anti-apartheid movement really took off, and with it, the uh, opposition to apartheid, but also the power of the ANC within the Communist Party. And the, Co the Communist Party also arranged that the Soviet Union supplied weapons to the ANC and financing to the ANC. And although the West also did what it could to oppose apartheid, sometimes strongly, sometimes not so strongly, um, I mean, the Scandinavians put a lot of money into the ANC, for example. The anti-apartheid movement was based in Britain. Uh, you know, there was, on the other hand, you was Mrs. Thatcher who refused to have sanctions against the uh, the National Party. So did Ronald Reagan. Indeed they did. Yeah. But I mean, to, to Mrs. Thatcher's credit, when there was pressure on, on her to ban the, uh, the ANC in Britain and to expel some of its key members, she always said no, absolutely not. And when she was asked by the South African government to supply weapons, she said no. So, I mean, it's so a more complicated... So she was a more complicated figure yes. than people make her out to be. Exactly. She mm. wouldn't go down the sanctions route, but she did not provide weapons and she did not kick out the ANC or the anti-apartheid mm -hmm. movement. So, all right. So, whilst uh, the communists are uh, pulling the strings and getting money to the ANC and are organizing demonstrations, you are um, in the Labour Party. You are now in the black books of the ANC. And in a way, you're seeing at the seed stage, the urge towards monopolizing power. The ANC doesn't come across from your story as a terribly democratic organization. No, I don't think it ever had a, in, a, in that sense. Certainly not after it was shall we say, uh, after its early years. I mean, in the, in the early years, the ANC worked with other organizations. Don't forget it goes back to, um, I think it's 1912 uh, that it was, was founded. And in its early years, it worked with other organizations, partly from the influence from the Communist Party. It began to see itself as what it wanted to be, which was the sole legitimate representative of the people of South Africa. And in a sense, when they then got money from the Soviet Union, when they went and their cadres trained, were trained by the Soviet Union and by the East Germans, they inculcated in them an idea that they were, in a sense, the vanguard party, just like communist parties see themselves all around the world. And they have no room in their 
shall we say, their political lexicon for real democracy, which they see as a bourgeois and a indulgence. capitalist indulgence. Exactly. So the vanguard of the proletariat. That's exactly what they thought themselves to be. If not the vanguard, they were at least the, the, the front organization with the Communist Party working within them being the vanguard. But they, they certainly saw themselves as, as really the representative. And it is a position that they feel to this day. Hmm. Now, now we've transitioned very smoothly to today. Uh, you covered um, South Africa. In fact, you are South African. And uh, one of the great things uh, we've just discussed that happened to the African National Congress, the ANC, is that Nelson Mandela left setting a great example for the rest of Africa. Uh, but whilst he left, the ANC has still developed um, a one-party state, which is corrupt, which operates on patronage, and which has been unable to come to grips with South Africa's problems. So what is going on now that apartheid has gone, now that the ANC is in power, what is going on in South Africa today? Well, let's just clarify for, for people who are not quite clear about what you said. The ANC, sorry, Nelson Mandela left, but he didn't leave the ANC. He, he left the presidency. presidency. Yes, yes. He, he stood, he correct, stood correct. for to be the first president of South Africa, did a great job. But after five years, he indeed left. He said, I'm not going to stand again. I'm retiring. It's now for somebody else. And people yeah. begged him to stay. And he said no. Yeah. Very different to, say, a Robert Mugabe. Very different to, say, even Jawaharlal Nehru in India, who, who died in office. Exactly. Uh, very much like George Washington, really. Yeah. All these things, all the comparisons are true. And it was, in a sense, Mandela's great gift to South Africa that he said, because nobody can after that say, well, I'm indispensable. Because if Mandela was not indispensable, then sure as hell, nobody else will be. But coming to the present day, we're at an absolutely critical juncture. Because for the first time in my lifetime, and I'm 73 years old. So you uh, don't look it one bit. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. But I was born in 1950. So the National Party, which controlled South Africa until the end of apartheid from 1948, through to 1994 and the end of apartheid was one party. They dominated the country, although other parties were sometimes snapped up by them and used for in various ways. They were completely monolithic. And since 94 until today, the ANC holds the same position. Mm. They are a monolithic party, which has occasionally used politi other politicians, but is a dominant party, completely dominant. And now, next year, in 24, we will have an election which the ANC might lose. And it will be the wow. first time in my lifetime that we would then be seeing the ANC having to not be the sole party that dominates power, but has to share power with another party. I'm not they would probably almost certainly be the largest party but they could get 44, 45, 46, 47, 48% of the vote. Getting 50% looks difficult for them now. Now, of course, one can't be sure. Maybe they will. But at the moment, it looks as if the ANC will be uh, have to lead a, a coalition, which we've never seen in South African uh, post-war history, certainly going back to 48. Now, the one thing one has to say about that is we do have some examples of what this leads to. 
because at a local government le level, and there are all the provinces of South Africa, and in local municipalities now, there have been coalitions because the ANC doesn't dominate everywhere. In the Western Cape, it's run by the Opposition Democratic Alliance. In other places, the ANC runs it. In other places, it has been a mixture of many parties, but they've been incredibly um, unstable because, in a sense, you, if, if you're reliant on one person, that person, even in, even in a tiny party that nobody's ever heard of outside your municipality, they hold all the power because if they switch parties and go to the other side, they, in, in a sense, then, uh, you know, that party falls. Yeah. So it, it has um, been very, very unstable. That, that's a feature often of coalition politics. Israel is, of course, the most spectacular case of such instability. Exactly. And it for, for precisely the same reason, because they have a, an, both Israel and South Africa share one thing, which is a party list proportional representation exactly. system. And when you have to, we are in that, that system, then all power is controlled by the party and not by the electorate because you aren't electing a person, you're electing a party. Just uh, for a lot of people who don't know this system, Britain, for instance, has the first pass the post system. What does that mean? All right, you have a constituency, four or five candidates, um, the two big parties are Labour and Conservative, the Lib Dems are a third, and you elect uh, four your MP, your member of parliament. In the US as well, you, you have an electoral college for the president, but when you're electing a congressman, you're basically choosing someone who comes through the primaries, Democrat and Republican, and the person who gets more votes gets in. In the proportional representation system, a party that gets 4% of the vote gets 4% of the seats, and a party that gets 10% of the vote gets 10% of the seats. And the names the party puts down on its list become the representatives of the people. So the party acquires inordinate power and uh, it can lead to a fragmentation of um, representation and consequent political instability. So there are trade-offs in each system. I mean, the big thing about proportional representation is that it is entirely fair. As you say, if you get 4% of the vote, you get 4% of your representatives. Yeah. While as in a, in a first-past-the-post system, you can have, should we say, 35% yes. of, of, the, yeah. uh, of the votes, but because you have more than the next uh, party, you get the seat. But the big difficulty is that you have no relationship with a particular area, and the people in that area, or town, village, whatever it is, have no control over the person who's selected by the party. That's why all the power is really, at the end of the day, in the hands of the party, because the party is the one who makes these decisions. Yeah. So and in we, a strange way, it's very centralized. The power within a party is very centralized and all parties tend to become centralized and, and therefore you don't have that local relationship between the MP and the constituents that's, that you have in Britain. Exactly. And one of the great things about the, the, the British system is that uh, at the end of the day, if you don't like the person who, not the party, the person who doesn't represent you properly in, in parliament or in, in your local area, you just say, well, I will campaign against you if you don't support me for, I don't know, digging up the roads or looking after our school or our hospital, and you're not doing, you can campaign against that person. You don't have to throw out the entire party. 
Anyway, this is rather a long way from South Africa and uh, uh, the uh, South African election. But that is the, the election that we will see next year. Now, the, the one great thing about the South African elections is that certainly until now, they've always been very well run. The people who win the elections are the people who have got the most votes. And that you can't say that about the rest of Africa, uh, where often things are, shall we say, less than transparent, where parties that are not in opposition don't have a fair crack of the whip, they don't have the, uh, the ability to stand their candidates, people get killed and uh, votes disappear, and get, there's all sorts of uh, ways of, of, of rigging an election. So in that sense, uh, the ANC is following the model in India, the INC, that elections are fair, even though it has run a one-party state. Yeah. A bit like the Indian National Congress after independence. So why will the why is the ANC likely to lose? What has gone wrong for the ANC since 1994? In a sense, they're... they're there are two things that have gone wrong. The one is that the, the ANC has failed to find a way of running the economy in a way that really grows the economy and brings about prosperity for the people of South Africa. I mean, if you and are- jobs, a, really. Exactly. It's I mean, a young if, population. If you're a young person, you have a, perhaps a 50 or 60% chance of being unemployed and there's no, there's no, no benefit for you. Mm -hmm. You have no, you're no welfare. So you are absolutely desperate and broke. And that is a terrible thing to happen. And the other thing is, which is the flip, flip side of the coin, is that the ANC is now ruthlessly corrupt. I mean, unbelievable. I mean, there's, there was a story came out today where the head of the uh, passenger services of the railways stole 42 kilometers of line, of rail track. Allegedly. I mean, he hasn't been tried yet, but they've been trying to get him to, to court for, for years now. It hasn't worked. But I mean, there was a picture in the papers of this is the line that disappeared. There's only a one track. There used to be two. Now, that's the sort of thing that happens all the time in South Africa. It's not even commented on. So they are emulating the Indians and the Pakistanis. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I leave for you, you to say that. I'm not going to. But it's, it's a tragedy that South Africa is both badly ruled and ruled by people who are utterly corrupt. And it the one thing that we need now in South Africa, as, as one needs in all in all yes. societies, is a change of government, a new party to come in, and in due course they will be, you know, power corrupts, all power corrupts, absolutely, and they too will will fall apart. But so I think what we need in South Africa is exactly what the ANC didn't want when we started talking in at the beginning of this which is we want to end the idea that the ANC is the sole legitimate representative of the people of South Africa. Excellent. I have one key question for you. And that question is very simple. What are the institutional safeguards against corruption? In the end, it is, of course, civil society. It is the people who organized in a proper way through uh, through the legal system, through their through their uh, societies, and through anti-corruption organisations, who bring about a transparency, working with the media, and holding people to account. But you then also require a legal system that is capable of taking people through the courts in a timely manner. And this is one of the great problems. I mean, there have been allegations against former president. Jacob Zuma for years now 
um, he's had 700 allegations of corruption against him. Mm. I mean, some are very small, but I mean, the, the, this is the, the no, number. They add up. They add up. Yeah, yeah. And he he was he went into a relationship with, uh, unfortunately, an Indian family that came, the Guptas, and. Um, Oh, the Guptas are infamous, even in India. I, I know people who worked for them, and, and there are some uh, dodgy stories. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they've now had to leave South Africa because their 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 ways have been, uh, you know, revealed, shall we say? They are um, in Dubai. Yeah, exactly. And where uh, apparently the sheikh helped himself to some of their wealth. I can believe it. But uh, when they left, the, the rumor is that uh, Jacob Zuma flew out, and they flew out in a plane that he was sitting in with gold bars. Oh wow! Yeah, well, terrific, terrific. Now, now, the lack of timely justice is a problem in many former colonies, and judicial reform and legal reform, indeed, is a subject that many thinkers, jurists, um, civil society people, journalists, academics, and so on and so forth raise all the way from India. Bangladesh, Pakistan, to Kenya, to Latin American countries. So is that particularly unique to South Africa? Is it going through the same problems as many other former colonies? No, you're absolutely right. It is uh, because you need two things uh, for, for justice to work. One is that the judicial system is independent. Mm -hmm. And the other is that uh, the government leaves it alone and allows it to proceed in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. And that has been one of the great problems, um, certainly in South Africa, and I'm sure in other places as well, that the, the, the courts, yes, will produce a result in the end, but you know it could take years and years and years. And that justice delayed is justice denied. And that, I'm afraid, is what you know, plagues the South African system. And if we're to have a properly functioning uh, body politic in South Africa, we have to have the courts that will, in the end, hold everybody to account. And I'm not saying this just against the ANC. It should be all parties should Understood. be held to account. And you need a level playing field. And I mean, it is one of the reasons why, for, for example, uh, I mean, here in London, there is a commercial court. And if you, if you want to see it, it is the most extraordinary thing because there are five uh, floors packed with court cases of Tajikistan taking on Uzbekistan over some pipeline because they actually want to know what the justice is about this, not some uh, judge that can be bought and a case that can drag on for years and years and years. But it is a rarity, and that is what you need. You need that system. And I, I don't say that because I'm living in Britain. I'm saying that it's because that is what you need for all societies, is that people know that they can go to the courts and in the end that they can get a decision that genuinely reflects the law. And you believe that once the elections of 2024 uh, are, are, are over, um, there is a possibility of such a reform? Well, there's at least the possibility of a coalition government. Hmm. Whether the coalition government brings in those kind of reforms, that I'm not going to predict. <laughs> but or it dissolves uh, due to infighting. <laughs> anything is possible. Anything is possible. I'm afraid uh, that's just we can't know. But the one thing we, we know is that there is uh, disaffection with the NC, and next year's elections are likely to lead to a loss in its... Uh, hitherto unchallenged domination of South African politics. 
as long as you stress the word likely, yes, I completely agree with you. And yeah. I hope uh, I hope to go to the elections. If I do, then uh, I hope to talk to you about what the uh, how they're going. Excellent. Well, on that note, Martin, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.